Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. The English Premier League commands a worldwide audience and current values of shirt sponsors alone across the 20 teams totals £233.6 million per season. It's clearly big business and attracts big brands, especially international ones, but it is a market that is crowded and for some clubs it's not just about saying we are a Premier League team and brands saying yes to sponsorship. As such, some clubs are building sustainable commercial programs including alternative sources of revenue and Southampton FC are one of those clubs and Stuart Ramsey, Head of Sponsorship, joins us in this episode to take you inside their commercial program. I'm your host Daniel Oyston. Welcome to episode 32. Thanks for joining us and I hope you're having a great week. Before we do hear from Stuart though, Mark Thompson joins us as usual to build on last episode's chat about reporting and the four key principles that you need to follow for good reporting. And this time around, Mark talks to us about the key ingredients for a good report. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, part two of reporting. How are you? I'm good. Yourself? Reporting season. Mm. But before seasons, you've got another holiday planned. Yeah, <laughs> holiday. Yeah. Don't tell That's where wife. you go on planes, you go on holiday. Don't tell my wife it's a holiday. Well, it's not really a holiday? Well... You know, I don't. I don't work. It's a holiday from housework. To be fair, well, I don't, I don't work a hundred percent of the time. I do try and oh, that's just a myth, is it? Culture. That's just a myth. That's what I tell people. But right. uh, I do try and take in the culture. I'm off. I'm off to New York for the first time. Actually, I've never been to New York. Right. Um, so catching up with our friends at Nielsen Sports over there, um, the New York City Red Bulls. Yes. As well, we're, we're paying a visit to. So um, I'm going to take in a Yankees game. You got a home game on the Saturday, which will be fun. Um, yeah, and I'll just so I heard mostly holiday and all that. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's you. work. Yeah, so, and then off to London straight from New York for for a few weeks. So, a big month of May. I'm, I'm on the road for pretty much all of it. So, if you're a listener in New York or London, and you've just been itching to buy Tomo uh, coffee or a beer, you know what? I'll buy or a bacon and egg roll. I'll buy, I'll buy them a beer. Wow, there you go. And yeah. I won't edit that out. I'm going to hold. <laughs> That's uh, now. They have to have not been bought a beer from me before, though. Oh, it's a short list. <laughs> All right. So let's get back to reporting. Yes. Um, last week, we looked at the key principles that you need to have in mind before you can even start to look at putting together your report. So if you... If you're just joining us for the first time on the podcast, go back to episode whatever it was, 30, 31 maybe, um, and uh, have a listen to that. Head to the website, have a read of that blog where Mark's typed it all out nicely for you. Um, But today we're going to talk about what actually goes in the report, the actual key elements of what you need to pull in it. Yeah, we are. Um, But there are a few things that I, you know, some rules, basically non-negotiable rules. I mean, a report needs to be your own. Um, My inclusions here are um you know things that should be included but that obviously needs you need to know your audience and who you're dealing with and you can you pull things in and out and and as we said in the last episode there it's a report's like a cv you you have a big template and then you you tailor that for the for the audience you're talking to much like you would do if applying for a job but there are a few rules and non-negotiables that you need to remember when doing a report and and they're basically just uh Things such as don't just report on the contracted benefits 
that have been delivered. Your sponsor already knows about those. They're, they've seen them. They've received them. They are tracking them. Whether you think they're not or they are, they are. Um, don't just give a generic report. I've seen so many reports where people have just printed out 60 copies and just handed them out. Oh, yeah, cool. That's done. <laughs> Tick. Um, just change the cover sheet. It's like it's cool. I've seen some that haven't even been. It's the, the, oh, really? They're not. They're just, you know, sponsor recap. And this, every sponsor got the same. So oh, there was wow. no tailored information. It was just analytics, really. I feel special. Yeah. Um, handed out at an event where all the sponsors were at too. So they didn't even get the perception they were special. Um, Jeez. Anyway, deliver your report, which is suitable for your partner. So, you know, the, there's three kind of formats that you, you have options to deliver reports in. I, I suggest being prepared to deliver in all of those formats. One is a PDF um, one's a slide deck and one's a digital link and obviously digital link's the best easiest cheapest um, and if your partner is happy to receive them like that so they can forward them around to different parties gold some do like them in a presentation format because they have to internally present the findings and others uh, you know a pdf which is printable so um, they're the formats that that you've got to be prepared to deliver your reports in and and needs to be purposed for your specific partner and how they're going to use them you don't want them trying to recreate the report you might lose some messaging yeah correct so we, we've we've got those in place they're the things that we need to remember before we actually start pulling this all together into one of those formats or all of yeah. those formats what are the, the, the really key elements that are going to make it a good report? Look, the, the, there needs to be a thank you message in the report, thanking them for, um, you know, their support and, and, you know, letting them know that the, the job done has been um, done well through their support. But um, a lot of reports that I see, it's just a generic thank you from the, the chair or the board, you know, much like an annual report message, you know, with a photo of the CEO or... <laughs> or uh, and the little or the, signature. Or the chairman. Exactly right. And um, personally, I used to add a bit of a twist to that and I'd get a, you know, who's the favourite player of that sponsor in, in a sporting team or, you know, someone they've helped from in a charity background and get the get that person... Or, or ghost write a message or get that person writing a message thanking that sponsor. It's, it is, puts a really personal, emotional touch on the um, report from the first page they read. It, it's captivating. And, you know, the, this copywriting 101 tells you you, you start with the, the first line and to make them read the second line. And the reports are, are no different. So thank you messages in place. Yep. Cristiano Ronaldo's written it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Everyone's happy. Oh, we go big. Has he signed it too? Yeah, he signed it. Wow. So, this, like is one of a, so this is now a valuable report. It's a saleable commodity. So now you get to frame it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stick it on eBay. No. So we're now going to look at some, what, what's the next thing to look at? Yeah. So then there's some key generic metrics um, that, that should probably go in there just because all sponsors are going to want to know this. So like key, key generic metrics to them or the organization? The, the organization. Yep. So generic metrics around, um, you know, what your reach is, including any growth since they last saw a report or a proposal was put to them, the growth areas, um, what your audience is and the demographics of your database fans or community because what that will do is it'll actually help um, to reinforce some positive stories but also focuses the, the report on the objectives of the partnership. So you know these are business 
marketing metrics. These aren't, we won 16 games, we lost four, you know, we had some new players come on board. Th- those are all sort of chairman's choice type situations. Yep. There, These are actually business metrics. How can we use this channel as a marketing channel for our business? So these are generic metrics that just set the framework of what you want to actually, how you want to pull the partnership forward. And then do we move into their actual benefits, their, their stats around Exactly. Their so then you sort of personalise what their um, benefits are, the benefits snapshot. So this is where a lot of sort of sponsorship professionals start and end their reporting, which is, you know, ultimately failing in the report. So while it's, it's definitely important, it's not the actual focus. So I like, to ch- I like to keep this part brief. The sponsor knows what they received. If you've got good systems as well, you're reporting transactional element of the relationship ongoing so you do you've got whips and all of that which they have copies of so you know basically a simple what was the benefit when was it due when was it delivered and proof of delivery pretty simple per benefit per benefit category even if you want to sort of snap it down even briefer put that out there we did what we were supposed to it's not the purpose or the fault sole focus of this report but here it is i love this next one yeah so this is where um, a lot of non-tangibles are often forgotten. And this is, if we've done our job right when we've signed a sponsor. Yeah, I was going to say at the start. Yeah, yeah. at the start to align um, objectives of that partner and goals to those benefits as well, this is where you report. This is this is the most important part of the report. This is, these benefits we've shown you we've delivered actually help you achieve these objectives we set these goals at the start and these are the go- these are the, what the actual achieved results were so this is where we can show this partnership is working on a level that is non-tangible but really important to actually aligning yourself as a as a as a business partner to these sponsors i always used to say when i taught at uni i always used to say i'll always give you a couple of extra marks if you offer some recommendations, Mm. what we should do next based on what you've just spoken about, which is kind of the same as the report. We've looked at key generic metrics of the organisation. We've looked at the contracted benefit snapshot and the evidence and what was delivered when and and we've aligned it to objectives and goals. But if you can tell me what we should – what you think we should be doing next. Yes. I always gave extra marks for that. And exactly right. And, and recommendations that they show us a confident rights holder, um, but they also show a rights holder who is seeing this as a partnership, not a sponsorship, because a partnership is is all about working together for mutual benefit. So your recommendations will be in the interest of yourself and your partner to help create better growth. You know, ultimately it may even create partnership growth commercially as well Um, but if not it will still help drive a nice sentiment around we've shown you we've achieved everything your objectives are this we think if you sort of move or or focus on these carriers we can see better results next year and this is how we would like to do that with you and almost at a minimum i think the minimum is they could potentially ignore the recommendations but hopefully at a minimum it just simply starts a conversation around the well pushes the conversation forward. Hopefully you've already been having conversations. Yeah. But it sets a, a marker in a marker down to say, okay, we're, we're drawing a line under last season. Here's yep. some recommendations and opening the dialogue about how we're going to work together. Yep. Again, it moves the conversation away from the things you can't control as well. So you can't control, in a sporting context, you can't control um, team performance. You can't control fan behaviour. 
in a non-sporting environment, you can't control public sentiment of your cause. You know, if I worked in a homelessness charity um, for, for a long time and you can't control the public perception of the funding or the impact of, of the support given to the homeless. So You can't control the market that the sponsor operates in exactly their, right. and their specific industry. But what you can control is how you can work together to see success. And so that's what the recommendations and then mapping the path forward helps to do it pulls the conversation to a to a strategic level which which makes that partnership sticky too because if you can get your sponsors buying into this approach it's hard for them to leave because they've actually got to unpick business practice mm. very good anything yep. else to add in i mean I, I'd, I'd basically as i said earlier use this as your sort of your big you know your big template there's parts there which are generic there's parts there which need to be tailored there's some things that you know you might have some sponsors and you know let's face it 75 80 percent of all your partners um are, are probably just people that are lower level you know supply partnerships and things like that you may not want to it might not be worthwhile going to the effort of actually setting decent recommendations and long-term ones and things that are going to take time. But you could ask them, though, couldn't you? You can ask them, though. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. Let's let's work together on the report, and that's that's kind of what good reporting is all about. It's a collaboration put on paper hmm. to review what happened, to plan forward, to give your partners, your contact that, your partner, something to, you know, advocate for you internally over there but also sets a landing a landmark for how we take this forward into the next year you definitely don't want to be creating a report that lands <coughs> in their inbox yep or gets posted and they just stick it in the drawer no that's right i mean we've, we've met with rights holders that their, their their point of difference when we ask them what's your point of difference they, they say their point of difference is their reporting <laughs> so i mean that if it works for them yeah they've obviously nailed it very good. And if you want to read through all those points slowly, revisit them, just head along to the blog at sponsorv.net and it's all there. Thank you, Daniel. No worries. Thank you. Stuart Ramsey is head of sponsorship at Southampton Football Club and is a charismatic and highly motivated sports business professional with excellent experience and contacts within the football and sports industry. Stuart heads up the sponsorship team to secure and manage their sponsorship portfolio, which includes the likes of Under Armour, Virgin Media, Sport Pacer, Carlsberg, Garmin, Premier Punt, Southampton Solent University, Healthspan, and Draper Tools. Stuart leads the team to find truly integrated partners that deliver a platform to nurture, engage, and entertain audiences that then drives measurable value and delivers partnerships that meet and exceed their partners' marketing objectives. Here's Stuart. Stu Ramsey, welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Um, we've got two kickoff questions that we generally ask our guests, just as icebreakers, just to just to get it going and to get people to get to know you a little bit better. And the first is, if your house was burning down and you could only take one item with you from the house, apart from your family and your pets, obviously. What would you grab? What would it be? Um, I think I would take my watch. Um, I like my watches. Um, also, I like to be on time for that sake. So I'd probably take the watch that my wife bought me uh, when we were living in Switzerland or as we were leaving. She gave me a present as kind of one thing to go. She knew I love watches. So, uh, um, yeah, it means a lot to me. And, uh, yeah, I wear it, uh, wear that one most days and, and neglect my other ones I've collected over the years. <laughs> Playing favourites. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Second icebreaker question is, what was your first ever job? Um, I'd probably say, without sounding too corny, an entrepreneur. Uh, only on the basis that a friend and I set up a local car wash business in our local area uh, to earn us a few pennies. Uh, but we did have a couple of high-profile clients. We grew up in, in a county called Surrey, and Colin Montgomery was... Uh, was one of the clients so uh you know we charge normal rate of course but uh, (laughs) it's always good very entrepreneurial um Stu, what's been your pathway to your current role so um i started straight off the bat out of uni uh did economics at university and sort of were really hungry to get into london so i started out as a recruitment consultant in tax um fresh 21-year-old um, telling sort of 45-year-old-plus uh, head of tax roles um, what jobs they should be getting next, which was uh, a little bit uh, interesting. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, sort of very much a telesales-based role. So that sort of really started me off. But I uh, got a slightly disillusioned uh, with that and, uh, and thought actually sport was my calling. So I ended up doing a master's at the University of London. Um, and I wrote my thesis on uh, why do people support MK Don? So those of <laughs> people that follow English football um, will know the story of AFC Wimbledon and MK Don, and the creation and the movement of the club. For those that don't, ultimately, um, Wimbledon Football Club was a, was a Premier League side, uh, came to financial trouble, and, and ultimately the people that had the club uh, moved it to Milton Keynes, which was a relatively new conurbation in uh, central England, uh, to create MK Dons. The Dons was actually the um, nickname for, for Wimbledon. Um, and ultimately, what I wanted to find out was, you know, why do those fans that are supporting a club that has no history, has no heritage, and hasn't been around, um, what, what is it about them? And actually, what we found out was that people really wanted a, a really good experience uh, where that's good food and drink and a safe atmosphere, um, rather than going to watch, you know, relatively, you know, whether their team wins or loses. Now, that's 10 years ago. It probably changed because the youth of today is probably uh, has a slightly more tribal affiliation with MK Dons. But, yeah, that really got me off into football. And while I was doing that, I actually started out IMG uh, on their special projects on the hospitality sales team at Wembley Stadium. That was really exciting back in 2006, 2007. Um, and then from there, saw me go on to the Olympic Games in London. Uh, it was a, an opportunity that I think for anyone involved in that um, uh, opportunity couldn't turn it down. Uh, from there, you know, working quite internationally on the Olympics, I actually moved over to Switzerland with Lagardère and looked after um, the sales of their football products, but also some of their non-football products. Uh, and really started to forge out experience within the, the sponsorship world. And then from there, um, uh, ended up at the Football Association, uh, working on diverse sort of sponsorship portfolio from the, the bricks and mortar, so Wembley Stadium and St George's Park, to some of the more high-profile uh, opportunities that then ended up in the, uh, the, the titling of the, of the FA Cup, which is now the Emirates FA Cup. And, and then from there, once those sort of deals had been, been done, um, this opportunity at Southampton came up. And, and I think I'll go on to say the kind of uniqueness of the club uh, what drew me into this fantastic opportunity. So, yeah. 
very, very interesting uh, progression. Covers off a lot of key bases that if you, you know, you were to leave university and draw out a couple of key organisations and big events that you might target to work at, you've certainly uh, ticked off a lot of boxes there. So now you're the head of sponsorship at, at Southampton Football Club. Can you give the listeners a little bit of a, a rundown of some of your key partners and maybe how long they've been involved with the club? Just a bit of a lay of the land. Yeah, sure. So I joined the club uh, a couple of years ago, um, and we've you know been lucky enough and worked very very hard to, to see quite a large influx of new partners. So you know the sponsorship legacy is being created now uh, rather than uh, in history. So albeit there are some partners that are worth noting uh, as they both represent the new model we've created over the last couple of years, but also a nod to sort of its history. So to Draper Tools. You know, they've been with the club for 20 plus years. They've been with us from the front of sponsorship to, to now one of our key suppliers. And they've been with us for a variety, you know, for a variety of different reasons, whether it was a accentuated hospitality uh, partnership to, again, really driving their brand as they sort of um, wanted to, to get onto the scene, uh, to now really just making sure they're cementing themselves in what is quite a competitive marketplace within that sort of DIY trade area. Um, we have Carlsberg. We're fourth year in with them. They started out as just a, really a supplier, very limited marketing rights, uh, but now they're, they're a partner of ours looking to supplement their grow, global brand plans um, while being relevant to the local market. So we're really working with them to encourage engagement in Saints fans. So we're looking at doing things, for instance, with if Carlsberg did away days, content creation, um, and other areas of that that was not once done before with them. Um, Garmin, they've been with us a couple of years. Um, a locally based company, uh, but we're, and I'll come on to later, uh, they're a great company to work with and we've worked with them in a number of ways. Um, initially, they will have started out probably as a hospitality client, but uh, we've really worked with them through on a, on a local, global, and also product development basis that uh, uh, is a really interesting partnership. And then I suppose the most recent sort of one that to draw out is Under Armour. So we're one year in, uh, we're working with them on a number of uh, different ways. They will be a major partner of ours. They're with us for the next seven years. Um, incredible challenger brand, really knocking on the doors of, of Nike and, and Addy. And, and I think at, at some points, depending on what reports you see, Under Armour up there, with the, I think, second biggest brand in the US now uh, and making headway in, in Asia and around the world. So um, that would certainly be one that if we were to speak in yeah, seven, eight, nine, ten years' time, Under Armour would be certainly one that would be uh, a significant one for building our legacy on the sponsorship space. You've got some significant, well, some broad experience in the UK sponsorship market, the partnership space in the UK. What do you reckon the hardest thing is about working in that UK market? I think it's it's got to be differentiation. I think our... I very much view our competition as not just football clubs. It's not sports clubs. Um, it's, it's really, we are competing for people's time, money, and, and ultimately attention. Um, and, and I think sponsors know that now, uh, and they've got even more choice than ever before. Um, I, I think, you know, what I would say is I, we're, in a, we're in a global attention economy now. So it's not just the UK we're up against, we're up against the rest of the world. Um, I mean, football fans and Saints fans are having their attention diverted elsewhere all the time. 
Um, the club now is not the be-all and end-all for people's leisure time. Um, we're not uh, the first thing they think about and the last thing uh, that they think about when they go to bed. Um, so we've constantly got to innovate uh, to ensure that we have people's attention. Uh, once we have that attention, it becomes valuable for our partners. Uh, and I think that can only be done in, in how we treat them and differentiate ourselves uh, to brands and partners uh, in this space. Um, I think the behaviours of people are changing as well in this country. Um, they're becoming a huge amount, very much more content grazing. You know, we have a small window of opportunity to make a real impact in people's lives. Um, and so when we really focus on that, we've got to make sure we're different uh, and, and relevant to talking with them. Um, but I think this is challenging within the football space because I think inherently it's, it's a sector that's not really known for in, innovation. You know, some say, you know, uh, don't, don't, don't break it, uh, don't fix it if it doesn't need broke, you know. Um, so I think for us, it's, it's real differentiation. I think also measurement. I think that measuring success of partnerships um, that are not deep-rooted in the digital space is becoming more and more challenging. Uh, brands are now getting feedback on every penny that, that they're spending um, and, the effectors, and the effectiveness of this. So, um, you know, the, the sponsorship black hole, as I call it, where, you know, people would throw money into a rights holder and, and, and wouldn't really know where that money would go, is vanishing and getting smaller and smaller year on year. Um, you know, the, the, the ability to deliver uh, measurement and the effectiveness of our partnership is something that is really getting challenging beyond digital. And so I think that's really understanding the brand's KPIs, business objectives, marketing objectives and sponsorship objectives and making sure you're constantly aligning your uh, partnership to them. Um, I mean, it's, it's challenging out there. You know, you have to. You only have to look at some of the major sports events without major sponsors. That um, they either don't have something now, or, or or that they don't have anything on the table for the future. I mean, in, and in football, recently Vauxhall have just pulled out the home nations. So England, Scotland, Wales lead sponsors are up for grabs. Arsenal, Liverpool shirt sponsors are, are, are coming up. Um, you've got the 19 Premier League teams buying, um, that haven't got sleeve partnerships. Um, Champions League, I think they've got six out of seven league partners that are going to be coming up for renewal soon. Rugby, Six Nations title sponsorship, uh, cricket, the new 2020s coming up. Um, I mean, F1 as well, you're going to have a the Liberty Media coming in, that's changing. So it's going to get harder and harder because um, even these big rights holders haven't got sponsors now all lined up. And, and so, yeah, it's... Uh, it's hard, but it's going to be exciting. Yeah, and I think you made a very interesting or, or insightful comment there about, you know, we're trying to get a share of people's money. You know, marketers for a long time have spoken about getting a share of wallet, but it occurred to me as you were talking that we're not just competing for a share of wallet. We're also, as you rightly said, uh, competing for share of time, which is limited, and then a share of attention. So even if you're watching a game on TV or at the ground, you might have your phone in your hand. And I think those three things, those that if they're three buckets, they're very blurred. Those borders, I think. Yeah, absolutely, a hundred percent. I mean, a lot of people, and you know, we've done it in our business, and I'm sure others, where people say, you know, what. Who's your greatest competitor? And people may say, oh, it's Bournemouth down the road or it's Portsmouth or it's Crystal Palace or whatever. And, and the reality is it's not. You know, um, you know, we're having to fight to keep Saints fans engaged with us. Um, 
and you know we're fighting to keep football fans to um, to really engage with with our brand over others, and so you've got to be doing different do different things, and and I think you know people, um, and I think we're a developing economy. I mean, in some sectors they're becoming you know they're they're cash rich and time poor. You know, people uh, people all of these fantastic technology has given us it's arguably given us more time, but we're, we're using that to work to earn more money and then uh, <laughs> we don't have enough time to spend it sometimes. So uh, we, we've got to help brands to try and get in there and make sure that, you know, we get some of that, that, that wallet. Um, but also the only way we're going to get that is by getting some of that time as well. It's still a rat race. It's just a different rat race, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> now, you've worked in the sports industry for a fair while now. Apart from the obvious increase in appetite for digital assets from sponsors, how would how else would you say brands have changed their approach to sponsorship over maybe the last three or four years? Um, I, I touched on it, I think, previously. Um, you know, measuring the effectiveness of of partnerships is becoming absolutely crucial. Um, I saw that change from sort of two thousand and eight onwards, certainly in the UK. Uh, whether that from someone's hospitality spend to just looking at all of their where their marketing dollars were going, and what it, what, what what I saw from that point onwards were people going, well, I'm chucking this money down this black hole, um, and I'm throwing all this money in, and I can't I can't directly say that that investment has got me this many sales, or that investment has built my brand sentiment by X, or and so. Um, Everything that we do now uh, is all about trying to align the effectiveness of how it's going to, to, to meet some of, the, of their business objectives, which is most important, and then their other uh, KPIs as well. Um, I think also what you've seen is the storytelling has become more and more important within brands. Um, getting into the hearts and minds of their prospective customers is, is, is huge and crucial now. Um, the just badging um, something is just not working anymore, certainly not in the UK. Uh, I, I don't think it's working globally, but it's definitely not working with the youth of today. I mean, there's some stats out there that something like 75% of under 22s have ad blockers um, on, their, uh, on their computers. You know, so they're, they're turning this off and they want genuine interaction with brands. So I think, first of all, um, you know, we're is measuring the effectiveness. I think. Don't get me wrong, that you know the chairman's win partnerships still exist. Uh, people are always going to go into these if the chairman says he wants to do it. He's a supporter <laughs> of a club or loves rugby or something. They've got enough cash. Look, it's going to you know the, the chairman is go, going to still do it. Um, but I think that's becoming less and less apparent, um, and it's the storytelling. I think. You know, how am I going to measure this, the success of this campaign or partnership is always the question that's being asked now. Um, and in regards to storytelling, you know, how are we now going to put a heartbeat to that billboard? You know, how are we actually going to, to, to change things? Um, and, and, you know, brands have wised up to this. Um, you know, stories are what drives our lives. You know, whether it's our favorite TV program, you know, uh, to our friends and, you know, I was over in Ireland a couple of weeks ago and, and, and someone said, you know, storytelling is crucially important. I mean, you know, the Irish know more better than anyone because every time they go up to meet someone, they go, hey, what's the story? You know, <laughs> it, and, that, and that's just that's just ingrained in life. And, you know, I've got an Irish colleague and, you know, they'll say that to, to me. And, but that's why it's so crucial because it's part of our everyday lives. And, and if brands can get into that narrative, it's going to be so much stronger. 
Mm. Um, you know, where I think success has been reached for, for Southampton and rights holders as well as being through humour. Um, I think brands are taking a different approach and trying to get a sense of good feeling and positive brand equity transfer from themselves and a bit of content or the narrative onto uh, their potential customers. Um, I think being the biggest, best, flashiest is not always going to achieve the results and, and ultimately resonate with future future consumers. I think humour has seen recently, we've had a couple of sort of award ceremonies in, in the UK, uh, Samsung, uh, Road to Rio, you know, has got some, you know, fantastic um, accolades because they they really uh, embrace humour. We we at Southampton embrace humour uh, for our kit launch uh, last season, and you know we saw that hugely successful uh, in that. So I think you know really that that measurement and storytelling is uh, the two main changes I've seen brand focus on. It's an interesting comment around how much importance we are starting to realise we need to place on storytelling because. You know, in my very limited uh, paying attention in history at school, um, you know, cavemen drew stories on the walls and then people sat around campfires and told stories and then people gathered in town squares and communicated and told stories. And it seems as though we maybe got a little bit away from that and then brands have come back in and went, well, with access to people through technology, we now remember how powerful storytelling is and we want to build it into our marketing further. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you only have to look at some of the recent technology platforms, whether it's you know, uh, Snapchat, that are uh, you know, and, and Facebook are rising up, and other platforms. They're starting to move out, but you are starting to tell your own story, mm. you know, to your friends, and that's a daily story. In some cases, that's hourly stories of what you're doing. Um, that's how people are consuming things. So brands have to have to get on that banner. The challenge is is making sure you are credible in in that storytelling. Hundred percent. You are actually adding you are adding value because the moment that a brand comes and disrupts that storytelling, it, you know, um, you know, imagine having one of those books where you're reading a book and it always has the pictures in the middle. Yes, okay, you might like looking at the pictures of in the middle of these these books, but you know it disrupts the flow of your reading to a degree. And, and brands can't do that; they've got to be integrated throughout the story, um, or otherwise it's just not going to work. And and people will feel it's the cliche, isn't it? You know, no one likes to be sold to, but everyone likes to buy. If these if people think that they're being sold to, because there's big brands, you know, annoying them and getting in the way of what they want to do. They're going to switch off and you're just not going to resonate. So you've got to be credible in that space. Couldn't agree with you more. We spoke a little bit about it before and touched on it, but what rights holder sector outside of the big ones in the UK, such as football, cricket, rugby union, do you consider as having really come on and matured in the past couple of years in the UK market? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think I'll take sort of one from myself personal experience, I think, you know, mass participation, I think, rights holders are are really getting to the hearts and minds because actually what's what rights holders are able to do in this space is is allow brands to uh, give those consumers and customers with of the events and uh, whether that's professional or, or non professional events, um, the ability to tell their story and make their lives better you know, or add value to what they're doing. So, you know, we've seen um, the onset of Park Run, for instance, um, in the UK, where, 
you know, people get up at the crack of dawn and run 5K, and all run by volunteers. And although it hasn't had a brand um, sort of over the top of it yet, I'm sure we'll be looking once more and more people are, are doing that, we'll have a brand integrated into that that will add value to it. I mean, you also only have to look at Ironman as well and, you know, the way in which they are uh, approaching mass participation. I mean, I had a little bit of experience working with Lagadera on the ITU triathlon and, and seeing that, you know, the the ability for you to uh, get access to these people in an emotional environment that they are, you know, they are giving up their time and their money, but it's around, you know, betterment of themselves, um, I think is, is really interesting. And I think we'll see a lot more from that as well. And there's a couple of brands I personally have spoken to that said, yeah, football have done a good job in getting my brand out there, but now I want a conversation. I want a frequent conversation with somebody and mass participation is that frequency of conversation that I can have and they can genuinely attach themselves to me. So I think that is, um, that's an area that I've seen definitely come on in leaps and bounds. I think we haven't seen the last of it. I think generally people's uh, health and well-being is now becoming more important to everyone. Mm. On the front line, day-to-day, in your job, how do you go about identifying partners in what is a really, really crowded market in the UK? Um, I think I think we'd be naive to, to, to say that, you know, stupid to say that we don't go after the obvious categories that align with football. Beer, betting, you know, tyres. Um, you know, we, we absolutely will go and knock on those same doors because... They're large investors, um, and and it'd be silly for us to not to. But the crucial thing is is about you know you've got to be in it to win it, and that's that kind of strategy there as well. So on the on the other side, we've built a strategy where we, it has to be supplemented by um, your strengths, your vision, and, and, and what the the rights holder in our case, our club, has. Uh, unique that can cut through this crowded marketplace that is different to what others are uh, offering and that's not just in football that's in other sports so you know of course we can um, leverage our IP we can leverage the uh, Premier League we're on TV you know know, many many times a season some territories you know every single game is on TV Um, that is um that is something that, you know, we've really, we're going to be able to monetize. The secondly is really we've got to dig deep and find out what are we that is different to others, both in football and outside. And I think where we, what we looked at and said, well, where, what is our North style? What is our USP? And I think if you're, if you're a football soccer fan, you might know the history of Southampton and, and the, the fact that you know we've been immensely proud that we've been involved in taking whether it's our players or our staff to the next level of their career from uh, Gareth Bale to Theo Walcott to even Pochettino as manager at Southampton um, you know that's derived by our, our purpose and, and our defined purpose is to turn potential into excellence and so with that purpose we then go out and really focus on on brands and, and really try and tell our story that aligns with them. You know, we've nurtured some incredible football players over the years um, and we need to really be able to go and tell that story and align that with the right type of brand. So 
Um, you know, I can go into a brand and say, look, we're Premier League clubs. So if you've had 19 other Premier League clubs come to you, we've probably got exactly what they've got in their, in their sales deck. You know, I don't have that sales deck with me because it's, it's almost obvious sometimes to, those other, to, to some of the other brands. What I come is, a, is ultimately we've got to look in what can our business, our vision, our purpose differentiate ourselves and offer real business value. So for us, it's our staff. It's our knowledge, it's our methodology, it's you know, it's our it's ultimately our, a different type of IP that we have to, to cut through. You know, our trophies are not big shiny ones sitting in a cabinet somewhere. You know, our trophies are the players that you see in many different football clubs um, around around the country and, and arguably the world. You know, and, and what's created that? Well, it's been process and methodology that we can now look to transfer into businesses. So for instance, for us, we're now going out and actually talking to brands uh, and helping them solve real business problems and then giving them that global platform to be able to tell that story. So, for instance, we're pretty good um, at, at training people, at developing people. And that happens to be on the pitch. Now we're looking to actually set up a, another business to go into businesses and say, look, we can take the methodology of what we, or what we use with Gareth Bale and actually use it to your sales team or use it to your HR team, or use it to your customer service team, and help them develop um, into better people and reach their potential within your business. So actually, when a brand steps back, they go, well, look, yes, I've been able to get some, some fantastic awareness. I've been able to tell a fantastic story of development, but also I've managed to promote five new managers within my business and save a huge amount of HR costs looking outside. So... That for us is unique to our Southampton, but I think for other rights holders out there, it's about digging deep and really understanding what's, what is the most valuable piece of inventory that you have. And sometimes it could be the person sitting next to you. It doesn't have to be that billboard out the window. Without offending all the other fantastic guests that we've had on the podcast over the last couple of years, Stuart, that was an amazing answer very insightful and i think that all the listeners should rewind that and listen to that three or four times because i think that is probably the best answer i've had to any question on the podcast now i don't have a certificate you just have you just have it immortalized <laughs> on the airwaves <laughs> so yeah. we, we see a lot of big english football clubs focusing on overseas markets for sponsorship is that something that southampton focuses on at all Again, I've been known to say that, you know, we don't have an eye on the global market. You know, we are riding the crest of the global wave that is the Premier League. Um, of course, we will always have a, an eye on the global market, um, but it will be in different ways. So, um, you know, where we can tell our story the best will be um, will be different in different markets. You know, so our digital strategy at the moment and I suppose our, our marketing strategies is one that we call nurture, engage and entertain. So we'll absolutely nurture our core fans, give them what they want. They want to know what colour socks Tokyo is wearing. They want to know <laughs> what is going on behind the scenes of this football club. You know, we will give them that. You know, we're engaging fans. They want to see the action. They want to, they really want to, um, you know, either come to see a football game live and have a great experience. And on the entertained side, those people that can't do two or don't care about the initiative, we want to, we really want to excite them. We want to entertain them. We want to do things differently and go, do you know what? You know, I'm not looking to turn a Real Madrid fan into a Southampton fan. 
what we're doing is saying, actually, I love Real Madrid because I love Ronaldo and Benzema and I love the crazy goals. But I quite like Southampton because they make me laugh. Or I quite like Southampton because, do you know what? They've given me a bit of insight in how I can become a better person through personal development. Or how do I go and do something different in training? You know, that for us is where our kind of overseas story and mantra is, rather than trying to go out and do loads of global regional deals where, again, we'll just stick another logo on and give a bit of IP. Hmm. Um, you know, we, and we've got some strategic areas we'll focus on in the future. Um, so, for example, in the US, um, you know, we could, of course, go and set up soccer schools in the US. We could go and leverage the value of the, the Premier League in a town that's not already been offered this opportunity. Or we could go out to another town and say, oh, Southampton Soccer School's here. The, the, the reality is, is a lot of those sort of summer camp soccer schools, you know, are, are, are driven by the glitz and the glamour that the AC Milan's, the Man United, the Real Madrid's have. You know, we don't have Paul Pogba. We don't have 20 years of Premier League titles. What we do have is a real credible story of development. So actually, rather than going into a space and competing a space in the US on soccer schools, our view is, is well, again, take our IP and our methodology and actually go to where people need it. And that's in the, the other what, 11 months of the year uh, when these soccer camps don't happen and go into actual community clubs and say, here we go. Do you want to come and learn from us? So almost going in that rather than teaching the kids directly how to play football, actually we're now going in and influencing the influencers. We're influencing the coaches. And the coaches will then help us tell our story. Now, that is a real long play. Mm. You know, we're not going to sell any shirts in, you know, the first few seasons of that strategy in the US. But what we will do is in time, people will start to hopefully look at Southampton as a, I support them because they mean something to me, rather than I support them because right now they're winning the league and they're scoring amazing goals. Um, and, and that's a real long, that's a long-term uh, goal for us. And I think that's where we're looking at all of our overseas markets in a very strategic, long-term way because, and we'll get onto it later, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, uh, Premier League and you know, can be a flash in the pan. And, you know, being in the Premier League can offer huge gains, but if you fall out of it, it you, you can be in trouble. So part of what our partnership strategy is, is about offering value that's not always hinged on success. You know, um, so I, I think that for us is where our key of overseas market is because at the end of the day, we are not as successful as Real Madrid and Man United. So why bother going in and trying to compete with them on that same level playing field because we'll always lose. Actually, let's go and compete on a playing field where, where we are pretty good and we are winning at, uh, and that is that player development. Well, let's talk about commercial managers and clubs that might, you know, hinge their success on uh, the the success of their program on the success of the team. Now, Southampton won't be relegated this season, which is obviously great, but some clubs will, which isn't so great for them. Can you talk to us about, though, the, the, the process that you see that happens in other clubs when relegation looks likely or it's confirmed? What sort of, what sort of things do those clubs go through? Um. Look, you know, like I said, relegation at the moment is uh, is not something that you know we're we're looking at, but we always keep an eye on it. Um, and I think without labouring the point too much, you know, when we look at creating assets and creating partnerships, yes, of course, there's going to be a huge amount of value attributed to 
let's say, the media value of being on Sky, BT, and NBC in America, and so on and so forth. But it's about building value to that to that partner that doesn't always rely on success. You know, you know, we really work really hard not to have any delegation clauses in any of our and really and, and be upfront about that and say, look, we're offering you value here for your business. That's not always about television. Now, don't get me wrong. If someone's going to give us five million pounds in the in the championship, I'll be doing an amazing job if I do get that amount <laughs> of money. But you know, if if we're done, we've still got to be able to retain them as a partner in some guys, and that doesn't have to be you know a huge a huge amount of investment. But keeping them on board is is crucial. So having that underlying. Um, partnership strategy um, that, that has, is actually going to make business benefit that's beyond just, let's say, the brand awareness piece um, is really important. So I think look, that's really hard because that for, for commercial managers that are in that, that that scenario, especially for some of those clubs. And of course, we were one of the, you know, we are, could be one of those clubs in the future. You've just got promoted. Can you do a two or three year agreement? It's going to be challenging, certainly at the levels you're, you're doing. But if you can get to a point where that partnership has a foundation of commonality between the brand and the, the rights holder, then you, 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 you've got a good footing. I mean, for us, we've got a methodology we've been introducing about shared value and shared values. So it's taking that away from sponsorship and really a partnership and saying everything that we do and every asset that we we give has to be attributed to some sort of KPI, some sort of objective that we both can agree on that is going to add business benefit. Now, if a lot of them are attributed to media, that's great. But in order to get a real partnership spread, you've got to be looking at other areas as well. Speaking of other areas, you've got some some partners from industries that I, I suppose I would describe as not being very common at a club level at least. Is Is... Is that a result of a particular approach to the market? Is that something you're really conscious of, not just going after, you know, just the airlines and just the car companies and just the beer companies? Um, yes, it's absolutely conscious. I think, you know, I've to, to a degree a little bit before in that saying, yeah, of course, we'll go out to the big guys. We've got to be in it to win it. Secondly, we look at it and go, well, actually, how can we go to a business um, and and again, add value. So, look, we're a challenger brand within football. We're a challenger brand within sports and the general rights holder space. You know, it wasn't long ago when we only had just a shirt sponsor and a betting partner and a handful of hospitality clients that, you know, might have had a couple of boards here and there, you know. Um, but I'd also be lying and saying that on-pitch performance, um, you know, doesn't help thrust Southampton into the limelight. Uh, and give us a platform to interact on a more global stage and thus, and thus offer more value. Um, look, you know, we don't have a global audience like Man United, the Olympics, the All Blacks, what have you. Um, you know, and other football clubs within uh, our league and, and I think in other sports of our level, you know, we've relatively similar sized TV audiences to other right holders of size. Um, you know, the league has the really true global audience and, of course, will benefit from this, uh, but so do many other clubs. Um, so, you know, we have to we have to focus on different, on real different areas for us. So one of our strategies, OK, well, look, is there a legislative change? Is there uh, something that's happening in the industry that could maybe align with our values? You know, is there, so for instance, 
without giving away too much of our strategy away, you know, um, ICES um, in the uh, UK, um, you can increase the amount of money you invest in them. Um, you know, they've become a lot more consumer-facing product. Um, Barclays have come off the Premier League, therefore the finance sector has opened. Um, it's all about investing in the future. Right, you know, right now, if we went into the ISA market and these financial institutions and said, oh, you can put your brand everywhere, you know, the, the ISA product, it needs education. It needs to tell people that saving is good, you know, because right now, interest rates are so low, people are spending more than encouraging us to spend more and save less. So these products, you know, are, are not getting the traction they want. So it's an education process. How can we do that? Well, we go into this sort of unique market and say, look, our business is all about investing in the future. I mean, we, we spent £40 million on, a, um, on an academy. Now, other managers would have spent £40 million on a striker. Mm. Now, the fact of spending £40 million on an academy means that, you know, we've got the likes of James Ward Powell, who's been with us since eight years old and is now making the England team an incredible performance last night. You know, that is the value that we can and and people are starting to know that um you know that's one of the kind of methodology that we'll try and take is really based on our stroke our core principles our our, our 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 sort of purpose and then our values and i think as well um you know i mentioned it before you've got to look deep inside the business and just see what is what is different about you you know garmin sell golf products you know they sell cycling products why on earth well, they want to be associated with football. And, and, you know, they, for instance, are a great example of probably someone in the sector, I'm not sure other Premier League uh, clubs sort of have within this. It's, you know, we, we go at that, a, a real different approach. So Garmin, we've got the mass awareness, global awareness of the Premier League, and, and they'll be on our, our LED boards. You know, they've got a base in Southampton, which, of course, always helps, but that's a real HR strategy. We've gone in there and said, how do you engage with your staff in Southampton and how can we create it? So rather than using the Samaritan Stadium as a, just a football pitch, how do we turn it into a CrossFit arena? How do we turn it into something that actually relates to Garmin, but it just happens to be a football stadium? And secondly, um, sorry, thirdly, how do we use our, our sports science and medical expertise to actually help them create new products? How do we actually create, we become their research and development facility. So when they step back and look, they can say, well, actually, you know, we've got a marketing function, an HR function, and a business and a business development function in a sponsorship. That is where we're going to start getting unusual brands because we're hitting more than just the whole, oh, we can put you on, on our TV screens around the world. Yeah. I think it's a fantastic approach that, you know, basically positioning Southampton as being part of the fabric of the Garmin brand and you're actually providing value back to them rather than just marketing assets. Yeah, absolutely. Last year, the go-ahead was given for clubs to uh, offer sleeve sponsorship. There's estimates that sleeve sponsorship's worth about one quarter of a main shirt sponsorship deal, despite the sizable potential income to the club. Is it just another property to sell, or do you think that it's bigger than what it looks like on the surface to everybody else? And how are you approaching approaching sleeve sponsorship yourself at Southampton? Um. Look, I think the big clubs, they could sell their shirt sponsorship 10 times over. Um, they could sell their LED boards into 35 different territories and 90 minutes with different territories pretty, pretty easily. They're massive brands. For, like, for clubs like ourselves, 
Of course, more premium inventory is always interesting um, on how it can add value to our commercial program. Um, the challenge is right now is that there's 19 other shirt sleeves out there yet to be confirmed. The market is awash with these opportunities and therefore brands have their pick and will probably get a pretty good deal. Um, you know, without a huge amount of data uh, behind the value of it, a uh, bit of fingering there. You mentioned a quarter. Some people say a fifth. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's going to come down to, you know, it's only going to be as valuable as someone's willing to pay for it. Mm. You know, without that hard data behind it. And there's always an ego play. You know, the shirt is on the, is on the backs of the, you know, of the, of the output that we have, the players, the IP that we have. So there, of course, is an ego play there to be part of the share. I think some clubs, depending on how they've written their contracts, will find it hard to put another brand on there because uh, in how they're given exclusivity for any brands on shirts. Um, and I think, you know, it's got to be looked at the, the, what's right for the club because I don't think you can sell it on the basis that, that this is going to get you X number of eyeballs because, you know, we don't know what the tracking is going to be like. Um, if it's a bit of an ego and an upsell, I think a few clubs, you'll see that a few clubs. Um, we've had a strong look at the sleeve, um, and I think we'll look at it from a more strategic angle um, to really drive the right value for for the club and for the product, um, and that will come with time. So, you know, are we going to are we going to get a quarter, a fifth, whatever have you, on our shirt sleeve uh, for next season? We might do. We might get more, but we might get less. Um, for us, we. We're in a, even if we went out to, you know, brands right now and said, look, this is the opportunity, they will have had 19 other people in front of them at the same time. Um, so, yeah, we're taking a strong look at it. Um, it's in, it's in, a, uh, it, it's in our eyes, but, you know, how we're going to take that going forward is really whether I think the future holds the answers rather than right now. Speaking of the future, esports is growing massively and we've seen some clubs sign. Esports players. Where does Southampton sit with esports? Um, it's interesting. Uh, I've got sort of my own personal view. I think the club um, is still getting its head around. What does this mean? If you, if you ask the question, um, are we looking for a platform to engage with a different type of audience? Yeah, of course we are. We're always looking for new platforms uh, to engage a younger audience. And if esports fits that, platform for us to talk to that audience then we'll have a look at it and we'll build a strategy around talking to that type of audience if the question is are you going to create an all singing all dancing elite esports team well you know we're not the experts in that um you know we 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 don't know whether or not that is something that we want to put our time and effort into our time and effort right now is making sure that we are, are putting out a product on the pitch um that's the best that we can possibly do diverting funds and investment into esports i'm not sure i think on a personal view um you know i'm I'm still trying to get my head around calling fifa an esport because (laughs) you know the very definite you know fifa is is massive participation but on the elite side it's just not that big you know not when you compare it to the likes of league of legends overwatch csgo you know where the elite side is massive um, inside of that, and participation that is, is also pretty big, you know. But esport as well is, you know, League of Legends is its own code. CSGO is its own code, as much as football is its own code, as much as rugby is its own code. 
not be league, so on and so forth. So there's, there's whether or not you want to call it an eSport, I'm not sure. Um, I also think that the, the, the eSports that are being defined as take people away from reality. You know, these aren't like, you know, nice games, you know, that are for the faint, that aren't for the faint hearted. You know, these are killing people and chopping people's heads off and killing zombies and all sorts of things. You know, FIFA games and other simulation games are a reflection of reality. And I think that's where you're going to find a challenge to whether or not that can be a, a real esport. I mean, FIFA are addressing that with their FIFA Ultimate Team. Um, you know, the, the ability for you and I to play with um, Ibrahimovic up front, Ruud Hullet, uh and Paul Scholes all in the same side and represent Southampton, you know, is taking you away from reality and is really garnering uh, a lot of popularity with the youth. But as a football club, I feel quite uneasy that people could be playing in a, an elite tournament with Southampton and have no Southampton players. That's an interesting you know, point. You know, that for me is, you know, where, where, where does our part IP start and stop? Our players are part of our IP. They are our team. Of course, the badge is worth something. But, you know, if I'm in an elite tournament in Southampton versus um, West Ham, who also have an elite player, and, you know, Southampton have got, you know, half Liverpool players and half Man United players um, versus West Ham, you know, is it really Southampton versus West Ham? Or is it really the top four playing the top four just in a Southampton jersey? And that's where we, we're trying to get our head around that at the moment. But as a platform, i.e., you know, to engage our youth, absolutely. Right now, I would see FIFA as something about creating great content that, that, that um, um, you know, connects with my youthful audience, not about winning trophies. You know, the best FIFA players in the world are not that popular and I'm not driving the most amount of value for brand because the content of FIFA is, is, is funny, it's humorous. Whereas League of Legends, the best players in the world are creating the best content. So, yeah, I'm still getting my head around it. I think there's definitely an angle for football clubs. I just think they've got to be honest with themselves as to what they're trying to get out of it. If it's content creation, I think there's definitely a platform to go right now into it. But if it's creating a league team, or, you know, would it be better off actually creating an elite basketball team rather than an elite sports team? Very, very interesting answer. Lots of little angles I hadn't actually uh, thought of or, or heard anybody else speak about so far. Uh, Stuart, to, to, to finish off the interview, I've got three really pointed, practical advice questions uh, for the listeners. And the first one is, what would you consider is the most important thing to research when you are thinking about approaching a new sponsor and starting that the conversation with them? Um, I, I don't think I can put it down to one. Um, I think you've got to think outside of your sport and get into the customer's world. You know, you've got to get into the customer's world and really understand what are the, the business objectives whether it's so whether that's industry analysis and trends, whether it's legislation change that can see new entrants come into the market, uh, what are consumer behaviours looking like generally, and then what are the businesses that are actually getting on the back and rising the crest of those consumer behaviours? Is it business results and and business cycles that are changing it? Uh, you know, so you, you've got to look outside. You know, um, is do we go after uh, brands as soon as we see them on an LED screen of another football club no we're too late 
they're on the LED screen of another football club or sport, we're too late to go to, to, to go into that to a degree. But going back to your point about how do we focus on unique and different uh, sectors and companies, that's about trying to trying to get on and think a little bit differently. So, you know, for instance, I mentioned about our training centre and how we're looking at clubs. So, for instance, businesses now um, have to pay what's called an apprenticeship levy, um, which is basically a tax they have to spend on training for their business. So we'll look at this and go, right, well, we're pretty good at training people. There's going to be some businesses that have got a huge bill that they're going to, or tax they're going to be paying for training Let's go after them and offer them a solution. Oh, and by the way, we can also offer all of these fantastic things. So, you know, that's about that. That point there is about legislation change. So, those are kind of the I said rather than one four areas that I look at. But it's really about the customers' world rather than the, the rights holders' world. The second one is: What would you consider the signs to be when a current sponsorship is is starting to get off track? Um. I think the sign coming in a variety of forms. I think timing is as early as possible. So, you know, we we have a mantra that the first day after the contract is signed is the is the first day of renewal. You know, so everything that we do every day is always looking to learning and listening and understanding what the um, what the brand is doing and what their objectives are. Our shared value, shared values approach sets out very key KPIs and targets that we're gonna constantly measure against. So we should know pretty early by us not hitting those targets, whether or not the brand is going to start saying, mm, this is not working for us, we're not getting the right sales, or our brand sentiment is not uh, increasing. Um, what I've seen classically, though, is a bit of a lack of innovation and ideas to reinvent the partnership when you come up against some challenges, almost from the brand saying, well, it's not working, so, oh, we'll just leave it and try, you know, we'll go on and try and do something else, rather than actually addressing the problem and trying to come up with a new idea and asking the question, could we try something else? That for me shows that they've almost gone, it's not working. This is another thing that's not working or it's not measuring. What I don't want to try and reinvent it because I might just waste my time and this is not working. So, you know, that, that's kind of where I kind of see it. Great segue to my third question, which if we flipped it around how do you handle a sponsor who has considerable budget to activate? So obviously they're going to be attractive from an income point of view. They've got considerable budget to activate, but you just know that the idea that they are wanting to execute just won't resonate with the market. What do you do? Um, well, I ask myself, is like, well, how do I know it won't work in the market? Because if, if that's just a... Uh, personal opinion or if that is a subjective comment then then it's going to be pretty hard but if you know that it won't work in the market because of data and insight and experience and you've got and you can show the brand that then it's 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 just you're just reselling to them your you know sales at the end of the day is just convincing people of value so all you've got to do is show that this particular is not the best value for them um, and then come with a solution to say, if you want to get the most value out of your, your sponsorship dollars, here are some examples that have shown some real results. Your idea, albeit sounds great on paper, but this data has shown us it hasn't hit your specific objectives. 
And then they will, of course, go, well, yeah, I love, you know, I want to jump out of the plane with my brand off the back of, you know, the skydiver. I think it'll be really crazy. (laughs) But if you can go there and say, well, actually, the last three times someone's done something extreme like that, no one's watched it. People have actually had negative sentiment because they think it's too dangerous and represents, you know, not very. Then you can go to them and say, if you want to do that, then that is fine, but it's just not going to give you value. Here, on the other hand, is going to be the best value for you, and here's data and insight to tell you why. Stu, if people want to get in touch with you to find out more about Southampton Football Club, what can they do? Um, I think they can go onto our website. I mean, we've got a uh, sort of pretty generic um, app sponsorship uh, sponsorship at saintofc.co.uk. Um, I also quite like people looking at trying to engage with us directly through social media as well. You know, uh, it's interesting the amount of people that try and send emails and, and, and traditional ways. Actually, those people that have got in touch, whether it's people looking for jobs or people looking for help or advice, have used unique ways to get in touch. Um, shows people that are really willing to engage. So, uh, you know, um, you know, traditional forms, yeah, but if you've got a new way to get in touch with touch with me then it's certainly going to spark my attention i'll be more than happy to sit down share any knowledge or uh, or you know uh, consider someone if it's uh, if it's a unique way just not a skydiver yeah, yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> i'm petrified of skydiving so yeah that wouldn't work on me <laughs> Stu ramsey head of sponsorship thanks so much for taking us inside sponsorship at southampton football club my pleasure to be honest Prior to an interview, I'm never 100% sure how open and honest a guest might be around sharing their sponsorship approaches and management. And that's why I can't thank Stuart enough for sharing so much, both in time and detail. Uh, And that interview is right up there with my favourite one so far. So thanks again, Stuart. That's about all we have time for. If you want to connect with me, then you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at Sponserve. And, of course, you can connect with Mark Thompson on LinkedIn or email using mark at sponserve.net. Also, don't be afraid to get in contact and let us know where you are listening from, wherever you are in the world, and I'll be sure to give you a shout-out on the next episode. While I have you, have you downloaded our ebook called Aligning Benefits to Sponsor Objectives? If you haven't, then I highly recommend it because it will help set you up for future sponsorship success. And the best thing about it is it's free. Simply visit sponsor.net and head to the resources section. And while you're there, if you aren't already, be sure to subscribe to receive all our content straight to your inbox. Simply head to any of our blogs or podcasts at sponsor.net and fill in the subscription form and we'll deliver the content to your inbox each and every week. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, head to sponsor.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn.